Welcome to Transcendent Psychotherapist. So in the last podcast, I reviewed Bernardo Castrop's chapter on Jung's idea of the psyche, found in his 2021 book, Decoding Jung's Metaphysics. If you haven't listened to that, I really would start there first, otherwise this is going to be a little bit too difficult to access. In that podcast, I outline Jung's idea that the psyche proper, or what we call ego consciousness, is a mere portion of our broader psyche, which is rooted in an unconscious transpersonal realm. And I explained how the different zones, conscious and unconscious, can impinge on one another. In this episode, we dive deeper and explore Jung's idea of the archetypes, these purported deep structures of the unconscious that shape, well, everything. Chapter two of Castrat's book is another great read, although I did feel it was a little short on critiques of Jung's thinking about archetypes, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But Castrop explains really clearly what is a difficult and confusing topic, not least, I think, for Jung himself, who said that he felt the archetypes were somewhat beyond definition and explanation, but who nevertheless sometimes explained them in terms of really clear images. But anyway, so what does Jung mean by his archetypes? Andrew Samuels, a post-Jungian analyst, defines them like this in his Critical Dictionary of Jungian Analysis. An archetype is the inherited part of the psyche, structuring patterns of psychological performance linked to instinct, but a hypothetical entity, irrepresentable in itself and evident only through its manifestations. Kastrop outlines them in a similar way as an almost platonic yet living instinctual kind of template or organising moulds that imprint themselves on our psyches. They are described as tendencies, dispositions or probabilities that act upon us. Jung didn't come to the idea that there are hidden yet potent basic templates all alone. He draws on a long line of thought going back to Plato with his forms through to Schopenhauer and Kant with their ideas of pre-existing prototypes or schemas that shape our thinking. And, you know, the idea that there is something preset in the psyche on which experience and knowledge can be organised is pretty sensible. Just think of how you learn anything. You can only make sense of new information by hooking it onto something you already have. Just try grasping, I don't know, statistical calculus or quantum theory without a thorough grounding in prior mathematics. It's probably just not going to stick. And so also like babies have to have some inbuilt understanding to function at all. They know innately to look for the nipple to breastfeed or to find their, their carer's face. Jung uses the idea of dried riverbeds to explain the way archetypes are preset, predisposed possibilities, long hewn out by history that incline us to a certain path, just as water will tend to be pushed into riverbeds. The limitation of that metaphor, uh, of course, is that for Jung, the archetypes are active, not simply sort of passive recipients. Part of the confusion in Jung and his followers has been a tendency to, conf to confuse these predisposing psychological instincts with a hierarchy of images. 
So unions will often discuss the mother archetype or the hero archetype active in people, but then conflate the images of the mother archetype with archetypal mothering in itself. So that tends to result in lists or encyclopedias of archetypal imagery being then taken as the archetypes. But when, of course, he was being more careful, Jung differentiated between the images and what he calls archetypes as such, which, as we've already said, he saw as unrepresentable. Kastrup draws out another major theme of Jung's metaphysics, the idea that to attain psychic wholeness, the archetypes nudge us towards their goals. It's as if they're trying to unfold their full potential through us. And he's careful to point out that Jung doesn't see this as a necessarily healthy process if we fail to exercise control. As we said in the last episode, the ego consciousness is the psyche's volitional or will center. And so if we abdicate our will, we can end up being pushed by these psychic forces and dispositions involuntarily, and that doesn't necessarily always end well. Interestingly, I think Kastrup does tend to view this unfolding of archetypal goals as a benevolent process overall, whereas Jung doesn't equate archetypal goals with benevolence. Indeed, we might ask the question, why is old good? Just because an instinct it goes back through, you know, ancient history, Jung traces it in his dream down through the layers of a house back to human prehistory. You know, just because something's old, why is it necessarily good? There's this danger, I think, with all archetypal theorising committed by Jungians like Anthony Stevens, for example, that fall into this is ought fallacy. As philosopher David Hume pointed out long ago, you can't get an ought from an is. Just because some ancient instinct, albeit with a powerful or numinous transcendent presence, impels you down a path, there's nothing about that that makes it obligatory or good in itself. Certainly not without reflection. We might want to pause and really drill down further into the status of archetypes. Are they real? Or are they just some sort of extrapolation of tendencies we've observed? That question kind of reminds me of discussions about physical laws in science. You know, are they prescriptions or descriptions or both? Are they fixed or are they changing? There's a tendency in those fond of archetypes to assume they are fixed, universal, and something akin to kind of like prime directives of the universal plan. So let's unpack this a little bit more. Are they real? Well, a number of candidates have been proposed for locating the archetypes in nature. Some have suggested they are DNA itself, as does Anthony Stevens, and others that they're located in brain structure. Others point to structural predispositions of language, you know, language acquisition particularly, as you know, Norm, Norm Chomsky's idea, or deep anthropological patterns across previously separate cultures or indeed deep cognitive structures, again, in the, in the brain. 
Anthony Store highlights what he calls the IRMs or the innate, innate release mechanisms, uh, which are built into creatures, providing them with innate instincts that are triggered in the right environmental conditions. I want to say, yes, these are all indications of deep built in structures, but are they archetypes in the fixed and godlike manner often ascribed? Surely these are all evolved instincts rather than entities that are unalterable or capable of mandating the path of our psychic wholeness. When I read, sorry, when I read um, Stephen's book, Archetype Revisited, um, what's it called now? Archetype Revisited, an Updated Natural History of the Self, published, I think, in 1982. I came away with a strongly conservative sense of this is ought fallacy. These kind of approaches, I think, place us at risk of telling people who don't seem to be living out the historically instinctual norms that they are supposedly breaking out of the mould of, how they ought to be. Andrew Samuels, in his 1985 book, Young and the Post-Unions, I think is the title, highlights this as a reason why some unions are now shifting to the idea that the archetypal instincts might not be fixed. And indeed, if you think about it, the history of evolution would itself suggest that genetics, as well as culture, evolve in a kind of mutual epigenetic fashion. Jordan Peterson, himself highly influenced by Jungian psychology, is arguably prone to a similar is-ought confusion, like Stevens. So, yes, I think archetypes exist, and yes, there are instinctual patterns hidden from view, but I'm leery of according them the status of kind of platonic forms embedded and commanding the shape of all reality henceforth from an almost kind of as if they're kind of almost within the mind of God. And Kastrup locates the archetypes, as does Jung, in what he calls the self, or the, and the self with a capital S. And remember, for Jung, the self with a capital, capital S was akin to God. It is for him what Kastrup also sometimes calls God, or prefers to call mind at large, the totality of reality. And if we place the archetypes on this kind of footing, we're in danger of creating a god out of nature. And nature is, well, not always that nice. Having said all that, I think it would be foolish to discard the power of the archetypes. I'm in full agreement with Kastrup that all reality is one. There is what Jung called uh, an Unus mundus, a one world reality. It makes no sense to me to think of reality as being basically constituted out of two or more different fundamental substrates, sort of matter and mind. At bottom, it's all either material or mental. One gives rise to the appearance of the other. Not only that, but there's often this numinous and godlike quality to archetypal forces underwriting nature and if everything is fundamentally mental or consciousness these forces are living agencies and 
as Kustrop warns, they need to be carefully harnessed for our, for our good by our conscious minds. Some spiritual and theological considerations. Kastrup acquaints the whole realm of consciousness with reality. He equates this consciousness with nature. Mind at large, what we called last time phenomenal consciousness, is akin to God for him. This means, and he acknowledges this openly, that God for him is not as aware or metaconscious as us and that we are part of God. Well, what do we make of this? In some respects, I think it's useful. Whatever God is, if God exists, cannot be entirely divorced or separate from what we might call creation. And of course, in many theological traditions, God is said to be imminent and transcendent. God pervades the cosmos. But in those traditions, he's also distinct from it. And I don't want to advocate for any particular theology here, but just to look at the implications briefly. If God is too distinct from the cosmos, then we're left wondering how the cosmos has its, its existence. Theologians have often insisted that God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing, meaning not that God uh, takes some nothing and makes it into something, but that the divine doesn't create out of pre-existing stuff. God is not a, a mere shaper or forger of creation in, in those theologies, but its origin. However, if God is the origin and there's nothing outside in commas, outside of God, then where does creation come from? It has to come from the divine being itself, surely. Kastrup's theology has no problems there. However, if there's no real distinction between God and the cosmos, God equals not only the good in nature, but also the bad. And again, Kastrup has no problem with that. For him, God is nature in all its struggles to unfold itself, to know itself and maybe resolve itself. And its archetypal forces, if you like, are kind of active in trying to do this and will do that through us in part. We are kind of God nature looking at itself through conscious awareness, unfolding the reality it wishes as it sees fit. And I think there's much that's attractive in this, but are there some alternatives? We are, of course, in the realm of speculative theology here, but I want to embrace both Kastrup and Jung's position, but without raising it to the level of divinity. In ancient Greek and Neoplatonic thought, there is a way through, and it's this. Neoplatonism conceives of the idea of a world soul, or in Greek, cosmos with a K, but it sees it as itself an emanation of two other things. On the one hand, the ultimate source, what is called the one, which is the fullness, the pleroma of all being, sometimes called the good. And on the other hand, what's called intellect, in Greek, nous, which is the active product of the one as it beholds and considers itself. 
The one is beyond all definition, really. It's the ultimate horizon of being to the point where it's also considered beyond being. It is, if you like, to borrow a theological term, the ground of being itself, that which cannot not be. The reason, if you like, why there is anything at all, the ultimate and necessary ground. Castrop's God, what he calls mind at large, could be all there is. I grant that. I can't prove there's more. Nevertheless, there's something about mind at large or Jung's self with a capital S, the phenomenal unconscious that seems a bit too patterned, too much like something contingent that may itself derive from elsewhere for my liking. And it seems odd to me that the buck of all reality would stop and find its explanation in a mind that looks like it needs some explaining, a mind pretty much like ours, and Kastrup alludes to evidence that the universe, the cosmos, appears to have neural networks that just happen to be there. Uncertain why it's here, uncertain about what's going on, and kind of impelled to figure it all out. Now, I may be wrong, he may be right, what I suspect is that if we add Kastrup or Jung's position into a yet deeper matrix, we may be closer to the truth. The archetypes, then, are just part of what the world's soul is doing, in my view. Why it's doing it and why it may be here is a mystery for another time.